name's Brad. I'm one of the ministers here, along with Leslie and Ryan and some of our other staff people. Uh, so we are in the middle of a sermon series on Romans. This is actually our second week. And so how many of you read Romans 2 today or sometime this week? Okay, great. How many of you did the theological homework from last week? Well, you actually wrote a theological statement that is clear, concise, and in normal common language, not Christianese, uh, that, uh, that you can share this morning. Oh, great, good. Well, great students we have here. Uh, you failed to do your homework. All right, so we'll go again next week, the exact same assignment, which is to share a theological statement that is clear, concise, and in, in really common language, not high and lofty uh, Christianese uh, for our church. This is one of those things that a lot of people ask for, is clear theological statements from our church. We don't post anything. We don't have anything really readily available. We talk through a lot of things. There's a lot of issues even within our church that we don't agree with uh, each other on, and that's fine. We feel really comfortable being an interdenominational church like that. But it's good for you guys to think through it, particularly as you read through the Constitution of Faith, which is Romans. So now I'm going to make this kind of up the ante. How many of you will commit to doing this next week? It's very easy, all right? All right, Josh, Troy, in my mind, David, Mom, Kay, yeah, Angel, Captain, Cyrus. Okay, great. Miriam, I'm, I'm looking at you guys. I will remember you next week. Yes, question, Captain. You can, that's fine, but we really want you to read it during our, uh, our singing. I never posted them in the first place. It's all verbal directions. They're pretty basic. You could write them down on your phone if you wanted to, okay, instead of just referencing Facebook. Listen, remember what we did last time with Kurt and Don, myself and Leslie? We just read basic theological statements. What theology means, and it's gotten really weird and uh, confusing as a definition, is simply what God does in the world, okay? How he acts, how he works, who he is. That's theology. That's all it is, Okay? And so um, we're looking through Romans trying to figure out how God works in the world, all right? Who he is, what his plan is, uh, what he's done, any of that falls under uh, the general kind of definition of theology. And so what you do, write a simple, concise statement based on Romans. Next week will be Romans 3. Now you can do one or two or three or four if you want, that's fine. That's one through four is kind of the same section or one larger section. Just write a statement, all right? And for us to consider, to think about, um, you need me to read the ones I read last week for you? You would like that, huh, Tyrus? Well, if you would like it, then yes, I'll, I'll do it. All right, let's see here if I can find it on my phone. All right, so I'll read uh, uh, just uh, three of them, okay? Righteousness is through faith, not identity, not the past, and not by any adherence to a, sort, a set of rules, all right? Uh, sin makes us feel superior to others and makes us trade inward growth for an outward following of useless rules. All right? Faith leading to righteousness, this one goes into the sermon this morning pretty well, convinces us that God shows no favoritism and rewards those according to what they have done, not what they've heard. Okay, these are just basic statements of how God works and acts in, in the world, what he expects of us, those kinds of things. Is that pretty clear? So those of you, eight or nine of you, Except for maybe Angel, she's still on the fence, depending, looking at her face. Um, uh, we'll write those and be able to share those at our, uh, you know, in our worship next week, since we don't have any today, all right? And please don't write them during the sermon. You know, you want to spend some time actually thinking through these uh, in prayer, uh, in devotional, that kind of stuff. All right, let me just make one other thing real clear. Uh, in two weeks when we do our walk through the community, ministering to people, praying with people, helping them with any needs they have, that Sunday will be canceled, but that training, one-on-one, how it's done, which is supposed to read like magnets, how do they work? Okay, not many people get that reference. ICP, Juggalo all the way. Um, so, one-on-one, how's it done? Okay, and it's an hour and a half in, in place of church. And any of you guys are welcome to that. College students, graduates, it really doesn't matter. If you want to come be a part of that, uh, but it's not going to be like a normal church where uh, where we do our worship and our speaking. We're going to have it all just speaking uh, and interaction 
and it will be about one-on-one ministry in the postgraduate world. So it might not be too particular, uh, pertinent to those of you who are in college, but I think some of the principles will apply. Does that make sense? Not meeting on Sunday, okay, as general church, but we will have that one-on-one training on graduate ministry. All right, how many of you dummies have tattoos? <laughs> Go ahead, raise your hand. Okay, all right, all right. If y'all will get out uh, during this sermon, that would be great. Okay, I know some of you who I know have tattoos didn't raise your hand. I was waiting for you. All right, so of those of you who have tattoos, I want to ask you a question, and I just want you to share. It's pretty easy. Why didn't you get that tattoo on your face? (laughs) Yeah. Still working on it, right? She's in grad school. It's not a bad thing. I'm just saying, you know, we know people in grad school can't actually be working on their career. Okay, it wasn't a knock. That was just, all right, whatever. Yeah, right? The rest of you, let's go. You got tattoos. Uh, why not on your face? It would hurt. It would hurt. <laughs> More, okay, well, sure, yeah, I guess. I mean, but forehead seems like it'd be fine. I mean, all that bony stuff, it doesn't, you know, seems like that'd be one of the easier places to get a tattoo. Anybody else? Why not on your face? Okay, so you got the tattoo because it looks good? No, I'm just kidding. I don't want to set you up for that. I'm just messing with you. I'm only messing with you, please. I'm going to talk a lot about tattoos today because apparently that's what Romans 2 is about. Uh, so, anybody else? Why not on the face? Your mom would kill you, yeah. You were trying to hide it at some point. What? I didn't want my grandma to know Yeah, right. Okay, lots and lots of good reasoning here. All right, well, I got kind of two pretty simple points for Romans, and I don't think I'm going to talk too, too long about it, but I never know. Uh, sometimes I get up here and start going, and you never know. So my two points from Romans are related. I don't normally preach two-point sermons like this, but I'm going to today. And the first point is really going to have a lot of uh, illustrations kind of wrapped up into it. But the first one is Christian morality isn't a vote of conscience, Okay. And I'm going to explain this, what I mean, but I wanted you to kind of get a start on writing it because I like to be very verbose in my titles and in my, uh, my writing. That's something they teach you in grad school. You know, the most, more text you can have in a graduate paper, the better, you know. You put that little colon and then you get a ton of other information afterwards, which is what this sermon is. The, the sermon title is The Power of Impartiality, Morality, and the Majority. Look at that. Nice. Got the colon. No. Uh, power of Impartiality morality in the majority. That's, I just really want to let that sink in because that's probably the best part of this sermon is the title. So, um, yeah, the first point, Christian morality isn't a vote of conscience. It's a character value. I'm going to make sense of that in a moment, but it is not a vote of conscience, but it's a character value. All right. Now, remember, we're talking about politics, and I know we didn't overtly talk about politics last week, but we very much laid the foundation for the whole idea that apart from living by the Spirit, we live in accordance with laws. They may be legal, they may be cultural, they may be natural, uh, but you got to kind of know what we talked about last week to have a good understanding of how to read Romans, because Romans talks a lot about the law, and Christians too easily think, well, okay, I don't live under the law, the Old Testament law, so somehow this whole law talk doesn't apply to me. Absolutely wrong. We all live in our nature according to law. And law is a good thing because God created it. However, it's not a saving thing. At best, it'll protect you, but it's not going to help you thrive in the way that God wants you to thrive and to live in accordance with spiritual values and being uh, ultimately a Christian. At the most, it's about minimums and what not to do, not what to do. And when you think about morality particularly Christian morality, it often is associated with what not to do. And if the gospel for you is about what not to do, unfortunately, you're not living according to the Spirit. You're living according to some law, religious law, societal law, whatever. Because if that's the best you can do, then you don't really need to to have God in that because all of us can sort of live by laws every now and again. And I mentioned last week that every time we live by the law, we lose. We'll ultimately lose because we're going to break it. We're going to pick and choose. We're going to create our own laws based on these you know, more important laws so that we can, someone mentioned at the parent night last night, tithe, spice, mint, and paprika, which I don't think that was part of that. But I did like that analogy a lot. I thought that was really good. 
Um, anyway, so we, we can't live according to the law, and yet most Christians still live according to the law, unfortunately. In the same way the Israelites didn't go beyond the law to understand who God was, they simply lived in accordance with their own law, and God kept saying, and, and of course Paul says in Romans, that's going to fail. You're always going to fail living according to the law. It will never enable you to live as I've intended you to live, all right? And so that's a real quick wrap-up uh, of, of last week. But Christian morality isn't a vote of conscience. It's a character value. Now, this one will be a little bit less, I think, ambiguous than last week, but it's still not specifically addressing political issues. We'll get into that starting next week, and we'll give it to you ad nauseum, okay? We'll talk about the criminal justice system next week, uh, and that'll be one of the first things we really, we really tackle. So for those of you who are like, well, we're going to get into specific political issues. Well, we've got to lay the framework first, and then we'll go from there. So Christian morality isn't a vote of conscience. Oh, I have another point on that one. I forgot. Well, let me add something. You can use one of those little arrow things, right? Christian morality isn't a vote of conscience or custom. It's a character value. Oh, yeah, custom. I forgot about that. Yeah, the, the original word morality, I mean, that's really what it translates to. It's just a custom. It's just interesting that we tend to associate with right and wrong, because really what it meant in the Greek world was just a custom you had, a ritual you had, all right? And so I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, etymology or the background of words, because this one will be kind of important to talk through that. So uh, I'm going to say it one more time, and then that's probably the last time I'll say it. Christian morality isn't a vote of conscience or custom. It's a character value. All right, so I've thought about tattoos, all right? Now, what a tattoo ultimately is, is kind of a, a branding, a permanent thing that goes on your body. Well, what's really interesting about the word character is it comes from a Greek word called charis, which was just basically a branding stick. That's all it was, okay? Uh, we get kerosene uh, or something like that, which sounds like a gas, is the word for engraving. Character, the words, like so many of our words that take on meaning over the time, really was just a branding instrument. That's all it was. And you would brand all kinds of things. Now, those words develop as time goes on, and the whole idea of character developing into what we now kind of think about it, which is this vague term that more or less means you're kind of a good dude or a good lady, kind of. You have character. Just means you've been branded with a certain way of living that people can predict from the brand. So if you have this sealed, you're, uh, I don't know, I'm, this is where agriculture and farming, I don't have much, but don't they brand like milk cows? So they're like, hey, this is a milk cow. Uh, well, there you go. You know, that's a milk cow. Don't eat it for beef. I don't know. <laughs> um, but that word, character, it's just an instrument. It's an instrument, branding. This is what to expect. Uh, it's been sealed. It's been branded. There we go. Okay? So this whole idea of tattoos will make a little bit of sense to you. So I've got sort of five kinds of people, Christians, when it comes to character. Number one is the Christian t-shirt character. Okay? Now, by character, I'm not talking about like character like as character in a play. I'm talking about character as in the kind of character that we've come to more or less agree on is some sort of inside set of, of values, of ways of behaving that we can come to expect from someone. That's the whole idea of character. It's consistent. It's inward. Uh, they do it you know, whether uh, they're with a group, whether they're with, uh, by themselves, whatever. It's just some behavior we can kind of come to expect. So, Christian t-shirt character, all right? I like this one. I know it's not a tattoo, but let's be real. Good Christians don't get tattoos, all right? <laughs> Pretty sure there's a Leviticus law about that, so I think some of you guys need to go pay to get that thing removed. <laughs> so, Christian t-shirt character, right? The in-your-face kind of character. I'm a good person. I'm a this character. I don't know. Christian t-shirts are really pretty terrible, most of them. Um, we actually did this a couple years ago at uh, the Welcome Week event. We had the, uh, we basically did free coffee and snacks and stuff, and then we had worst Christian t-shirt idea. This was sort of Grant and my idea, and people signed up, and we had this like long line of people signing up. Uh, I actually know a couple embarrassing ones from people who are here now who are, uh, were freshmen at the time, but I won't mention them. Um, and, uh, but we got a lot of really good ones. I think the one that won, which is really unfortunate because it wasn't my favorite, is uh, be salt, not salty, you know? I was, I was like, okay. So the whole point was terrible Christian slogans, and, you know, we voted for them. There were like, I don't know, 30 or 40 of them. 
and people, uh, you know, that one won. I don't know why that was not my favorite. There were a lot of really, really strange ones, which actually, had I planned this sermon in more than 15 minutes, I probably could have uh, put some of those on the board for you, and that would have been nice. But this kind of character is in your face, right? But it's also off and on. You can wear it one day and not the next. So it's totally a transient thing, which, of course, defeats the whole idea of character in the first place, but it's this in, in, uh, kind of intentional showing off of I'm a Christian, I have this kind of character in one atmosphere, and in another, I can take this shirt off and move on to another, okay? So there's one. That's my first typology. I like these typology kind of things. All right, this one's going to be a little offensive, particularly for those of you who have them, but if you do have them, you should be offended. This is the Christian tramp stamp character. Now, for those of you who don't know what a tramp stamp is, uh, they're those really wonderful and beautiful tattoos right there above the pants line, you know? I would say this is probably not so common with uh, guys, uh, but uh, yeah, so maybe this is a little, um, I don't know, like singling some people out. Tramp stamp, character. All right, so the tramp stamp is an interesting one because it's still kind of like the t-shirt, it's hideable, right? You can hide your character from one environment to the next, all right? You can be a Christian in one environment and another, not so much. But it's also really kind of a hypocritical standard because what's the point of getting a hideable tattoo that we all know you ultimately want to show off by wearing your, I don't know what shirts do, uh, what are they called when they're kind of up a little bit? Crop tops. Apparently I was wearing one last night actually. Um, <laughs> Chelsea and Troy and my other roommates were making fun of me about it. It was an undershirt. There's nothing wrong with a crop top undershirt, all right? I've grown out of my undershirts. I'm sorry. It's not the right size, but I don't want to show them through. I'd rather, actually, I'm wearing one right now. I won't show you. Um, but that's the Christian tramp stamp character. It's hideable, but then at the same time, it's still kind of showy because the whole point of getting that tramp stamp is that show you can kind of show off what you got back there, which I guess is a crack. I don't even know. That's not even the nicest area, but maybe it's supposed to be kind of you know, taking you. So it's a kind of hypocritical uh, way of thinking about character and having character. In Romans 2, this is really what Paul's talking about with the Israelites when he tells them you're judging all these people around you based on the law, and yet you don't even follow it yourselves. And in a very damning comment, he says, you know, they follow their own law, which is written on their hearts, better than you follow this better superior law, which I wrote out for you, all right? And so they've got this double standard. All right, the next one, the Christian foot character. Okay, the foot tattoo. Some of you guys like foot tattoos. I know you do. So what's up with the foot tattoos, right? I mean, you know, what, what do you need a tattoo on your foot for? What's that, what's that doing for you? I don't, I don't really know, but that's kind of a popular one. All right, but here, the, the character here, it's kind of minor. People generally think it's pretty acceptable and maybe even a little cute, right? <laughs> cute, it's a cute tattoo on your foot. You got a foot tattoo. I, you know, now that I'm thinking about these tattoos, man, I'm, I'm going to be singling out women here. No, no, I got some guy ones here later. All right, good. So you got the cute. So this is sort of the minor character. I'm, I'm kind of a Christian, but in a minor way, okay? I'll show some Christian character, minor, in ways that are kind of cute, good, acceptable to everybody. It's good Christian. Good Christianity. Not too obsessed. Not a goody-goody. We don't want any of those. But I've got that sort of cute Christian character. All right. Then we got the Christian sleeve character, right? Sleeves. There was some guys in here, you know, the hipster, cool, my sleeve, my arms, you know. Again, what's interesting about this one is now it's not so hideable anymore, right, unless you wear a shirt, but it's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. And the whole idea of wearing your, your uh, feelings on your sleeve is the idea that you're not, you know, showing kind of, you know, what you got in terms of tattoo. I'm going to be honest with you. If I got a tattoo and I don't have any, I'd probably get a tramp stamp. No, just kidding. I... <laughs> would probably get a sleeve, because I also ride motorcycles, and if you got a sleeve and you ride a motorcycle, oh man, you are cool, all right? Like there's, like there's no higher level of cool, particularly in Denton, than a motorcycle riding sleeve tattoo guy, all right? That is super cool, and you guys know it. Uh, but still, the, the point here is that it's about being loud with my character, but also kind of being cool with my character. I'm doing something different, new. You should be into this, you know? Why aren't you into this? And then the last one, which might come as a surprise to you, is Christian face character, face tattoo. 
Face tattoos are really interesting, right? Number one, not very many people or not many people have them, as for many of the reasons that you suggested. I remember watching either a documentary or a, or a series of pictures, which um, was about showing guys who had full face tattoos uh, through digital imagery and manipulation what they would have looked like or what they did look like before they got all their tattoos. And it's actually very moving because most of the guys who see what they looked like before they got their face tattoos, and these, these are guys, generally face tattoo guys, they're pretty burly, strong. Many of them broke down and cry, or uh, broke down and started crying because they just forgot what their face had looked like. All right? You can go watch this. It's either a documentary or, I don't really know, maybe a slideshow picture or something. Hopefully it's not one of those fake things on Facebook. I'm pretty sure it wouldn't be because I would usually use it as an image illustration. All right, so... Christian face tattoo. Now, this face tattoo. Why in the heck would we use face tattoo as a sort of guideline or a epitome of good Christian character? Because it often, it seems like it's a bad thing. So the metaphor, what is it? Well, let me tell you a couple things I think about this. Number one, it's both ugly and beautiful at the same time, right? Face tattoos are really pretty ugly. They're just in your face, no pun intended. <laughs> there they are. You can't hide them or cover them at all. You, you, every other part of your body, you'll be able to do it, even neck, but your face, that's, you're going to have to do a lot of work to cover that tattoo. It's on you. It's not hideable. But at the same time, it's not some cool, people don't go around seeing people with face tattoos and they're like, that guy's cool. Oh, I want to be like that. That would be great. Because it's got this ugliness to it. And a beauty too, because it's still a human face, but someone's been in completely branded in a way that's just not something that most of us would do. It's almost an obsession, okay, going too far to do that. But one of the other things I was thinking about when I thought about this pretty silly and stupid uh, series of illustrations was ultimately it changes the way everybody else views that person. You can't possibly look someone in the face with a tattoo, full face tattoo, even the little teardrops and stuff, which a couple of my friends have, and there's a million different meanings apparently for that. Um, and, uh, and actually, I have a friend, a good friend, who comes frequently who did money signs on his eyelids. Money, bling, bling, money signs on his eyelids. <laughs> I will not give you the reasoning for why he did it, because I just can't repeat it. Um, but a full face tattoo changes the way people look at you, all right? For better, for worse, whatever. And if Christian character at its core doesn't change the way people view you, it's not really Christian character. If you can hide it, if you have the ability to, you know, maybe garner attention through showy means and through, oh, people are thinking, wow, that's really cool, or that's this or that, it's not really Christian character. The whole point of Christian character is that it's so pervasive, it's so in your face, but not in a showy type of way, that people look at you differently. And unlike a face tattoo, hopefully it's positive, but at the same time, Paul talks about Christians being you know, the stench of death to those who are perishing. And so in some ways, it's, it can also be very ugly. Christian character can be. Now, I don't want to go too much further into that, because I know there's a, a variety of ways that you can interpret that and think about that. I just want to give you the image and then uh, I want to be more specific here in my second point. Second point, which seems completely unrelated, but I'll bring them back together for you, is God does not show favoritism. Do you? Now, this is a really, really strong point of contention among scholars and Romans. Because here you have in chapter 2, God shows no favoritism. He's not partial. And then later on, you'll read in chapter 9... God predestined some of those to be saved. Wow, the world. And in fact, many people who study through Romans, this is a real big problem for them. How can God be both impartial in his character and at other times predestined some to be saved and others not to be? Now, we'll talk about the whole idea of predestination. I know that at any given time, we've got... Uh, 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 predestination folks, Calvinist folks in here, and Arminian folks, and so hopefully it'll challenge both of you to kind of understand some of the middle ground that I think comes out of Scripture, not so neat and theological as we've kind of made it. But how do you deal with that? And so we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later on, but let's assume for now that you haven't read through Romans 9, and you're still just assuming that God is impartial, and you believe this, and this is great. God shows no favoritism. Well, how the heck can that possibly relate back to character? In Romans 2, 
Paul is talking and addressing two major issue, issues in the, uh, the church that he is talking to. Okay? The first one is Israelites who have cheapened the law by coming up with their own laws. Okay? And two, this new group of Gentile Christians who have cheapened the gospel by saying, oh, you know what? We have mercy, we have freedom. Sin isn't a big deal anymore. Okay? And in some ways, these two things are really related, but uh, uh, we'll kind of address that a little bit later on in some of the other cha- uh, chapters. Bonhoeffer called this idea cheap grace, which has stuck around in Christian circles for a while. Which is actually kind of a play on the whole idea that, that grace itself just means a free gift of mercy. God has given us freely of the gospel and of forgiveness. And, uh, and Bonhoeffer, though, talks about, in this kind of paradoxical way, uh, costly grace, grace that costs us everything, okay? And cheap grace, which uh, at the end of the day uh, was cheaply gained, it's cheaply given away, it's not really thought about. Think about the parable where Jesus goes into the, I can't even remember if it's the tax collector, no, no, it's not tax collector, it's one of the uh, priests or something, and a woman comes, bathes his feet, and he asks him the question, who do you think has been you know, forgiven more, that, that, that person who sinned more and been forgiven much, or those who haven't uh, sinned very much and haven't been forgiven much? Of course, he's not actually comparing one person who has sinned a lot to another person who hasn't. He's comparing the fact that the attitude of the priest was, I'm okay, pretty much. You know, you should be just as honored to be in my presence as I'm honored to be in yours versus the lady who makes a fool out of herself in front of a bunch of men washing his feet. The idea of costly grace versus cheap grace. So he's talking about uh, this, this cheap grace that's kind of infiltrated the church. Cheap grace is ultimately goes right back to the idea of obeying laws. Because at the end of the day, if laws are about minimums, and I break a law, well then, my goal is to get the least amount of consequences I can, right? And so for the least amount of offense that I've committed, the least amount of for, uh, mercy or grace I'm going to feel or, or anything to the system of laws because I haven't done anything all that bad, all right? And the same thing goes for, and we'll talk about this quite a bit next week. I know I'm saying that a lot and I apologize, but I'm trying to keep everything tight and neat into this sermon and not go too much into next week. So cheap grace. For those who cannot see a need for character development in their life, grace is cheap for them. They've not really broken any laws after all. They've not really done anything wrong after all. They've not really messed up that big after all. And so there's no need for the costly kind of grace that Bonhoeffer talks about. The tramp stamp Christian character, the t-shirt character, foot character, sleeve character, these are people who live in accordance with the laws of society, natural laws, and things like that. Their identity isn't so overwhelmed by God's stamp on their life that they even begin to understand the kind of grace that, that you know, follows through. They're just sort of following the laws. What's cool? What's in? What works in this environment? What works in another environment? but they haven't quite given the cost of fully tattooing their face to make it clear who they are and what they've dedicated to it. And so when we don't think about the goal of Christian development as being character development and the goal of Christian morality as God building his character in us, we have no real need for any kind of costly grace. Because at the end of the day, we make a mistake, we mess up, no big deal, we'll just sort of fix it, deal with the consequences, and move on. Or if we do mess up big, God's going to forgive it, it's not going to have any consequences, he's going to make all good from it, let's not worry about it, let's move on. But those who truly understand God's character, who he is, who Jesus was, have the attitude that Paul has in Romans 6, I am the worst of sinners, which sounds like a really kind of shameful and um, self-deprecating view of himself. And we're going to talk about that as well. We've talked about some in the past. we talked about the spirit. I think Paul is talking about himself in the past tense, not in the current tense. 
I do not think Paul believes he's the worst of sinners while he's doing what he's doing. I believe he thinks about that and looking at his former way of life. But at the same time, a part of understanding the gospel is understanding just how extremely far away we are from God's character. And that sounds like super bad news. And if you read Romans 2, it does come across as bad news. But at the same time, like so many things in the gospel, it's good news because let's just all get that out on the table, make it clear, so none of us are pretending that somehow we can be really all that good on our own, which has really become the moral argument of our time. If you will just look inside yourself, do what your heart tells you to do and desire, you will be a decent and good person. And I'm not talking here about the whole idea of original sin. Are you good? Are you bad? Are you mixed? Whatever. I'm talking about the positive statement that God is doing nothing short of making himself, making us, exactly like he is. And when morality comes down to anything else, it's about following the systems and rules of law, of some law, of some liberal party or conservative party or your your parents' way of thinking or being Southern or being American or being whatever. No need for much grace in that because your rules will allow you always to be a pretty decent person. And yet when we come face to face with Jesus, we see just how far we are away from God's character. That news seems bad, but in Christ the Spirit is at this moment, day by day, building God's character in us. Through every interaction, through every mistake, through every problem, that character is being built up. And what's amazing about that is that God's character and the whole idea of how the world ought to work, theology, is the only thing that will last well beyond our societal rules and political parties and particular regional and geographical areas. All of that will pass away, and when it does, what do you have left? But having lived a life fulfilling some person or some group's set of theories for what it means for you to be good. And all of those pass away, and all that's left is the character of God. And how he has organized this world, and how we ought to think about it. So cheap grace. Grace does not give us a license to sin. And Christians who propose or live like this get in themselves the due penalty for this problem, which is a cheap grace. A grace that does not lead to a building of character, but leads to an inability to ever deal with character and a settling for less so as to feel good about following the law. Okay? Cheap grace, and the second thing I wanted to say here is about character disgrace. We constantly deal with our character being disgraced. We're disgraced by the way that we behave. Paul talks about you know, living a life uh, worthy of the gospel that you've called. We're disgraced. We disgrace God's character in all the ways that we act almost every day. Now, this seems, again, like such bad and terrible news, and if you stop there, of course it is. It's why most people simply don't want to deal with it. It's much easier to deal with morality from the perspective of here are rules, here's what we think is good and right, follow those, be sort of decent, and you'll be good. But that is not at all how the gospel presents goodness. And when we buy into that lie, again, uh, we live down to a minimum standard. But character disgrace is what the Israelites are ultimately doing to the people around them. In Amos, the group that's studying through the prophet Amos this week, Amos is so interesting, and uh, he's just got some scathing comments for them. He calls people cows. He does all kinds of dirty language. Um, But one of the most important moments in Amos is when he tells the Israelites, hey, you guys are so good at oppressing each other that I'm going to call Philistia and Assyria to look at how good you are because you're doing it better than they could ever do to you. We had a whole small group on this idea of how Americans oppress themselves better than any other outside power could possibly oppress Americans. And he says, you guys have so disgraced the character of God, even outside nations are looking into you and thinking, 
That is so ugly. Even we wouldn't do that. Paul uses the same language in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says to the church who's like allowing this stepson, stepson, I think so, son and I don't really know, sleep with his mother-in-law, stepmom. I think it's stepmom. He says, what's wrong with you guys? You're accepting this as a good behavior? This is terrible. Even people outside of the church aren't doing this kind of junk. And you look at it and you think you're good? Judge each other before you start judging those on the outside. Take the charge to build character within the confines of your little system before you start trying to build everyone else's character outside. So I want to make this statement and then I want to move on. If the Spirit is not growing you in his character, you are living under the law whether you be a Christian or not. Okay? If the character of God is not being built up within you, now this is a, a way, axing and waning. It isn't some nice straight angle upward. Okay? We like to think like that, but major li- things happen in our life, and we thought our character was pretty good, and then our character gets tested, and we realize that was more just the kind of Christian t shirt character. Uh, there's nothing really permanent about that behavior that I thought. I knew was good and right, and it has to be tested, and it gets tested, and then we realize there's disgrace in that, and then God, in his mercy, builds on those moments in our life, and so don't, don't hear me saying that if, you, if you're not like got five times as much character merit as you had you know, last year, you're in trouble, really. You're probably not a Christian, so go and get baptized or take communion or whatever you think you need to do over again, because it's not good for you. If the Spirit is not growing you in his character, you are living under the law, Christian or not. This whole moral, uh, the majority thing that happened in the 70s and 80s, I won't talk too much about that, but if you're interested in understanding what that is and knowing it, uh, it was neither moral or uh, the majority, but we can disagree with that if you want to. Um, It was ultimately about showy kind of character. We're going to impose character on our nation without really imitating that much at all in the life of our leaders, okay? We're not showing any character here, really, at the deepest parts. We're simply just talking about how everyone else needs to kind of come up to the same uh, sense of character and understanding of character as we have without really growing on it. So, a couple thoughts here, and then I'll, I'll finish up on this idea of, uh, of character building and how the Spirit builds us up. One of the main things that allows us in the spirit to deal, okay, with character issues is that we are always committed to dealing with the consequences of our character disgrace, of of issues that happen with our character. Because as Christians, we don't see these character faults and problems as end-all, be-all, hide it, take it away, don't show it to people because they're going to think less of us. We gladly, willingly, for the sake of the gospel, show how God can work in our greatest weakness, our greatest mistakes, and greatest failures. This is one of the major character traits of a Christian, is we do not ignore sin and do not hide it and do not refuse to deal with the consequences of those things that we've done. We're honest with it. We're real about it. It allows us to be so. But that's one of the hardest things for us to do. Because remember, we live by the law. Our identity is wrapped up in the law. And therefore, as soon as we admit that we've done something terrible, wrong, and more so actually accept the consequences of it, then all of a sudden, our identity is sort of out the window. Because if our identity is about being cool or about being okay in certain environments, well, all we have now is God's approval. No one else is looking down at us and thinking, well, that was a good idea. You're pretty good. And so we lessen the consequences of it. We cannot pass on the consequences of character flaws and character, uh, lack of character in our churches, in our leaders, any of those things. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 12, we must judge each other's character humbly, particularly in the church, and not show favoritism to insiders. This has been one of the most damning things about Christian organizations and institutions in our society is they've simply shown favoritism for sin in their own organizations. 
They've got a cardinal that somehow was a cardinal for how many years, abusing how many people who finally, in the highest profile firing of any major leader in the Catholic Church, gets fired. How many people had to come forward and talk about this and deal with it to only be left with no answers, no resolution, until finally it becomes such a big problem, and has been for a decade now, that people are doing something about it. Well, that's because we're not developing, building humbly character in the church. We're letting each other get away with stuff that we ought not let each other get away with. And then looking at people outside the community and thinking, they're bad. They're just bad. We're better than them. So at least if we're, our law is a little bit better than their outside law, we're going to be good. Exactly what Paul is talking to the Israelites about doing here. You think that your law is better and superior, and yet you don't realize it, it calls you to a higher level of responsibility. You focus all your time and energy on how bad outsiders are and fail to take advantage of opportunities to build each other up in character, to deal realistically with your faults and problems and issues, and allow God, through his spirit, to make you in his own image as a result of that. And unfortunately, in the church, we have way too many testimonies of overlooking sin, not dealing with issues when they arise, not getting legal and law enforcement folks involved, not challenging people out on what we know to be problems within our our body and in our organizations, because we show favoritism to the insiders. And God says, that is not even remotely in my character. Sin is sin. You break the law, you break the character requirements of who I am, whether you're a Christian or not, it is not acceptable. My grace will cover you and move forward if you accept it, but it is never acceptable. And as Christians, we've got to call each other to a much higher standard. It's part of the reason we talk so much about one-on-one ministry. How are you ever going to know much about someone's character unless you're not sitting across from them day in, day out, understanding who they are and what they're doing? So much of church participation today is simply just anonymous participation. I come, I go, I have a casual conversation, somewhat like I would in a bar or a grocery store or, you know, sitting in a waiting room, and I call that church. And the only other people who really know me are my family, and my family are going to be some of the last people to ever call me out on my stuff, unless it bothers them to the point where they get emotional and yell at me. And that's what church community is is like in so much of our churches, ever want to be a church like that. We want to know issues from the beginning. We want to deal with them. We want to be able to say, hey, we failed. We made a mistake. We're going to deal with that mistake. We're going to accept the consequences of it. And we're going to challenge each other in that. And anonymous Christianity does not work. It can't possibly lay the framework for the Spirit to work in and among us to build character, to be people who are above reproach, to be people who, when we're looked at, it's obvious that our te- faces are tattooed with God's character. Be it be ugly, be it pretty at times, but we are tattooed with God's character, uh, uh, and it's obvious. Can't hide it. So, I'll conclude with just saying this. The power of impartiality is simply this. We can face reality. God allows us to face reality. Guys, so much of our anxiety and our depression and some of our mental illnesses beyond the genetic stuff is about not being able to face reality. I don't want to face that I'm afraid of this. I don't want to face that I've been rejected in this. I don't want to face that in my past I did this. God allows us to face the reality of what we've done and the decisions we've made And while, yes, there'll be consequences, absolutely, those consequences aren't final, and they don't end in our demise. They end in God working in the worst situations possible and bringing good out of absolute dirt and filth. And that's really, really good. Being able to face reality is pretty cool, okay? Because most of us, from time to time, get a little bit lost to the reality of the actual world. We get really focused on our own deal. The power of impartiality is we can face reality. We can see God at work in the worst. And this is why, guys, it's so important. Whenever we talk about theology around here, whenever we talk about sin or moral issues, we're constantly going back to what do we see in Jesus to explain to us God's character. 
God seems like a mean dude in the Old Testament. So much of that is because we're not really filtering that through both the authors that are writing that and through our understanding of who Jesus is. We haven't reconciled the two, not to mention the cultural time period and some of those things. And at the heart of Christianity, it's a belief that God is actually good. And it's very easy for us to live as Christians and live because we have friendships and we have, because we have a place to go and because we have things to do and we have purpose and fail to recognize that our faith begins and ends with a simple statement, God is good. And if he's not good, you're in the wrong place, okay? If he's not a good dude, not in the right place. Because if the Spirit is building within you an image of God, and that image is anything less than perfect, again, religious is worthless. Go somewhere else, do something else. Now, how do I learn that? I mean, I'm convicted of that, but I don't know that or believe that every day. I see it through people. I see it through God and how he's worked. I see it through the Word. I see it in a variety of ways, but God's character is always at the center of, and really the full gospel. It's his character. We are becoming more like him. And if you look at Jesus and think of anything less than, uh, you know, the reflection of God's character, you either got to question where you got your ideas of right or wrong, or whether you really believe he's the son of God. And that's the basic question we all ask when we become Christians. And the more advanced question that we actually decide if we're going to believe as we grow in our Christianity. Because it's one, uh, uh, you know, uh, thing to think of and have an experience with God a long time ago like you did with the nice grandpa and think, yeah, he was cute and nice and good. And then to never really think more about that as you move on in your faith. So this became a very challenging sermon. I'm not really for sure why because I thought it was going to be really funny. It started off pretty funny and I had a good uh, roll going there and then things sort of happened. So that just is how it happens sometimes. In any kind of challenging or, or maybe more difficult sermon, it is always important that uh, I think that it's okay to ask questions and, uh, and give feedback. So before we break for communion, um, any feedback or questions or thoughts or, uh, or comments about that? Right, yeah, I think one of the biggest things for me is one, uh, I love to use this word and it's such a stupid uh, esoteric, which is itself an esoteric word, um, a word in academia, it's called triangulation of data. And all that means is that you try to get as many data points as you can to verify this thing that's happening. Well, in reality, it's the same way. The more people you can get to kind of verify reality, who you trust and see reality, it's funny how that works. They can see reality, right? I look in the mirror, I didn't see myself with a crop top on. I get Troy and Chelsea and probably Josh. All of a sudden, triangle reality, you know? They're, they're you know, giving me the triangulation of the data points that, oh, you're wearing a crop top. Well, I didn't know. I do have mirrors, and apparently they didn't know. So people help you with reality. But more than that, it's the, the Word of God. That's the whole point of reading Scripture, is that when you read Scripture, and, and this is, I think, what's, what's probably hard, is that we have to kind of wade through what is the reality for the original hearers, and then what is, how does that reality kind of uh, you know, come back to us? And I think the first thing that, that we always recommend around here when you're reading scripture is simply not what theology idea this is teaching, not uh, you know, what this is going to give me for the day, what does this teach me about the heart of God? What is this passage? Now, again, there's places that are more difficult to find that out. You start with the prophets, you're going to be like, that guy's angry kind of most of the time. <laughs> uh, and yet, the prophets are so much full of grace and mercy that the reason people don't understand the Old Testament is, is full of the gospel ideas of grace and mercy, because God hasn't changed, is because they only read the mean stuff or don't read it at all. Uh, so what does this tell me about God's heart? What is this telling me, supposedly authoritatively, about who God is? And that will give me a pretty good reality check uh, every time I read the, the word, is just the, you know, going back to the, the heart of God. What do I learn about this? Because it's very easy to learn wrong realities from reading scripture. You're, you're looking into some weird way of thinking about it. But if you start with, what does this tell me about God's heart? You start to get an idea of the character reality, which is uh, you know, hard for us, guys. There's a reason we don't like reading scripture. Uh, a lot of us don't like reading it because it's difficult, sure, but also it requires us to think a lot about our lives and who we are. And most of us pretend not to want to do that too much um, because that's just hard. And, and it's right. I mean, you know, if you do it every day, you know, it's going to be pretty tough, so... Any other thoughts, comments, questions? All right, we'll take communion now. I'm going to say a prayer for it. Uh, if you haven't taken communion with us, uh, we just take the bread, dip it into the juice, and we're pretty 
jovial and uh, laugh a lot. The reason is because we like to be sacrilegious. No, it's not. The reason is because we think about this as a celebratory meal, even though it's a teeny tiny meal that never fills you up, but that's a whole other story. Uh, so if, if you're used to the more penitent, kind of sitting still, thinking through you know, the, uh, the whole idea of what Jesus did on the cross, great, please do that. Do you know, what you feel more or less comfortable with, but we just want to explain to you uh, the reason that we celebrate this is because uh, it's exactly what we talked about today. It's that Jesus has given us the ability, uh, not in some past event, okay, that just stops at the cross, but in some very present uh, uh, of, of his spirit, to be able to overcome these things in our life that there would be no way to, to do on our own. Lord God, thank you for uh, the way that you work in us continually. I, I can just look back at my own life and my failings and mistakes, uh, and man, I, I'm definitely uh, made way more of them than, uh, than many people that, uh, that I look up to around me, and see how you've worked in them see how you have made me more and more comfortable with understanding the consequences. Sometimes I've gotten off easy, sometimes it's been very difficult. But those lessons that I've learned have always uh, brought me closer into understanding who you are and what you want from us. And um, that's just tough, man. In the moment, it's everything we can think of to, uh, you know, try to get out of it and try to downplay it. And yet, uh, your spirit gives us this amazing power to face reality to deal with reality as it is, and to see reality as ultimately good, as ultimately a place that you have in your hands, uh, a place that you're working out uh, for the good of those who follow you. Um, that, that's just, it's really hard to believe. Uh, we'd prefer to just sort of leave it alone and not think about it. We trust you, God. We're gathered here to worship you, uh, recognizing and understanding that, uh, that as we gather here, we're here, but you're here, your presence is among us, uh, help us to worship in our singing today, uh, in our conversations today, uh, as if uh, you were here very much in a, a visual uh, presence that we could see you. Um, we love you, Lord. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.